Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. I love the truth of that song, and in many ways it echoes what we've learned in Hebrews chapter number 11 thus far, that you should be faith-filled, but how can you be faith-filled if he isn't faithful, right? And you have to have the knowledge and the understanding that God's faithful before you really can be full of faith yourself. Well, you can't live the Christian life without faith. It's an impossibility. The author of Hebrews told us this, that without faith it's impossible to please God. The Bible says very plainly that the just shall live by faith. It's not optional. You need faith. And we want faith, at least we should. And this chapter that we've been walking through has really been all about that. And we're almost to the end of it. Next week, we will conclude this series. Next week, I'm going to take the end of Hebrews chapter number 10 that actually set up chapter 11, and then the beginning of Hebrews chapter number 12, the bookends uh, alongside of this chapter to help you see the real authorial intent of why this chapter was written from the author himself. But before we get there, I want to cover the the rest of Hebrews 11 with you today. And as a pastor, uh, I want to be a, a pastor who believes God, I don't just want to believe in God, period. I want to believe God. I want to take him at his word. I want to pastor people who believe God, who don't just believe in him, but take him at his word and will trust him. And there's so much to glean from verse number 32 all the way down to the end, verse number 40. So if you would look at it with me, I've broken up this section of scripture into three points. Point number one is this, real faith, if you like to take notes, this is for you, I even alliterated it for you. Real faith is convinced of the supernatural power of God. So look at verse 32, here's what it says. The author, after getting through all these stories, right, looking at uh, Noah, looking at Abel, looking at Enoch, looking at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and all these stories, he says, what shall I more say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, of Samson and Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Stop right there. You have, in this little section, you have two thoughts going on. Number one is it tells you that there's these miracles that God performed, right? And I'm not going to go through each and every one of them, but it gives you this amazing stuff. It gives you the stuff that we make Bible stories out of, right? If you have ever been a part of vacation Bible school or Sunday school with children, this is the stuff that we get the stories from, right? It tells you, stop the mouths of lions, Daniel in the lion's den, quench the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, uh, Abednego, and the fiery furnace, all of these famous stories. It tells us that there were these miracles, Elijah's miracles, raising a woman's uh, child from the dead. And it's saying, as the whole chapter has, that God is big. God is powerful. God is not finite like you and I are. He's not limited by nature or space. He has a supernatural power, a supernature, above and beyond nature. He can suspend nature if he wants because he made it all, right? 
that God is big enough to look at the storm that should be raging and say, peace be still, and it stops. And God is big enough to look at the cancer that should overtake you and say, be healed, and it's done, and it's gone. He's that big. He's that strong. That that's God. But what most struck me from this little portion of Scripture is not just the miracles that God performed, but it's the men that God used. If you look in verse number 32, it begins to tell us these list of names. And one commentator went so far as to say that he gives us now a list of mediocre names. I don't know that I would use that description myself, but I get what he was, what he was pointing at. That the names here aren't a lot of the classic names. Some of them are, but you get these names in verse number 32. You get Gideon. Now, some of you may know who Gideon is, but Gideon, we know, was the least among his father's house. Gideon was a man that was plagued by doubt. God came to Gideon and told him to do some things by faith, and Gideon, I mean, he doubted, and he had to test God and test God and test God, and finally he conceded, and finally the faith won through, and God took this army of 32,000 and whittled it down to 300, and he used Gideon and these 300 to go defeat this giant Midianite horde. And God even took that and used that as an example of what the gospel would be like. Isaiah uses that story and says that Jesus will come as in the day of Midian, that Jesus is going to overthrow the, the, the devil. He's going to overthrow all the demons. He's going to do this, but he's going to do it in such a way where it seems like, how did victory come out of that? Through the cross. But this man of faith who was plagued by doubts, it tells you Barak. Now, I'm not sure if you would be able to articulate for me the story of Barak, but my guess is that most of you wouldn't be able to. You'd be like, hmm, I, I missed that week in Sunday school. I, I didn't get that story. He's in Judges chapter number five. He's a commander of an army, and he's not even like the, the spiritual leader. The spiritual leader at that time is actually a lady named Deborah, a prophetess. And Deborah comes to Barak and says, in the name of God, go out, and I want you to fight, and I want you to fight in valor. And Barak says, no. And some people look at Barak and say, that was, that, was, that was weak, it was timid, you didn't have faith. But he said, no, I will, but you have to come with me. You, you the lady, you have to be right here with us in the foray. And, and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that that actually was a demonstration of faith, that Barak was like, you're representative of God, I want God with me, I want you to come with me, and, and I, want, I want him in this battle with me. It's this crazy story, but Barak is this man of faith. You have Samson, Right? Samson's an unusual character in the Bible. Lots of good and lots of bad. Like th that man is, he is all over the place, right? Samson has what I call yo-yo faith. He, he is down and he is up. He is down and he is up. He is, he is just back and forth. He'll have confidence in God and God will use him and the spirit of the Lord will come upon him and, and great things will happen and then all of a sudden he's filled with lust and he's pursuing those lusts with all that he has. Then he'll be confident and God will use him again and then he'll be dishonoring his parents and, and really treating them like dirt. Then he'll have confidence in God and God will use him again and then all of a sudden he is filled with anger and rage and pride and, and he's, he's this man that is up and down and up and down. But it says, look, this is a man that, that not perfect at all, but he was a man of faith sometimes and God chose to take that faith and he chose to use that. It says Jephthah, all right, raise of hands. How many of you could give me the cliff note version of the guy named Jephthah? Not Jethro, right? Jephthah. He's, he's not the, wasn't Jethro one of the, uh, the hillbillies that found gold? You know what I'm talking about? This was not in my notes. I'm, I'm talking, this is a stream of consciousness right now. You know what I'm talking about, not Jethro. 
Jephthah. Raise of hands, how many could tell me the story of Jephthah? All right? That's about what I expected, like 1% of you. You can read all about him in Judges chapter number 11. It's a crazy story. Jephthah has a dad named Gilead, and the descendants of Gilead became the Gileadites, but he has his dad named Gilead, and Gilead has several sons. He has a slew of sons, and he has a wife. Only problem is that Jephthah has Gilead as a dad, but Gilead's wife is not his mom. Gilead stepped out on his marriage and went and visited a prostitute. She got pregnant and gave birth to Jephthah. And Gilead actually took the son in and said, I'm going to raise him alongside of my other sons, his half-brothers now. And as they got older, the half-brothers really kind of did this, almost like the Joseph story where the brothers turn on him. They look at him and say, we don't want you here. We don't need you here. You're not really one of us. Get out of here. And they don't mean get out of the house or get out of the family. They meant like get out of the city. We do not want to see your face, period. And he leaves. And he goes to this place called Tob. And there he becomes a mighty man of war and a mighty man of valor. And eventually the children of Israel are surrounded by the Ammonites. And they know of Jephthah's reputation. And they send to him and say, hey, would you come back and fight with us, please? We really need some help. We're in deep trouble. And Jephthah says exactly what you would say. You didn't want me then. Why do you want me now? Don't think so. I'm, no. Who are you? you? You literally threw me out of the country, and now you want me to go be your hero? No, thank you. And they say, please, 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 we need you. He says, all right, one condition. You make me the four-star general, and you put me in charge of everybody. What I say goes. I'm the captain. I'm the commander. I am in charge. If you will do that, then I'll come fight. And they say, we need you, man. Deal. So he goes back. The Ammonites send word, and they, they tell the children of Israel. They taunt them and say, like, what are you going to do? And Jephthah gives them this response that is beautiful, it is poetic, and it is full of faith, where he says, look, you don't know our God. Our God took us out of Egypt. Our God parted the Red Sea. Our God made the walls of Jericho fall down. And he goes back to all these historical moments, and he anchors his faith to that, and he says, that same God is going to deliver us. He's going to fight for us, and he is with me today. And he has all this faith, and he goes out, and he conquers only in the middle of all this conquest, Jephthah makes a very, very unwise and rash vow to God. And he says, God, I believe in you, but just in case like my faith isn't good enough, I don't know, can we, can we strike a deal? If you'll help me and you'll lead me to victory, then I vow. When I get back home, first thing I see on my property, I'll give it to you. I'll sacrifice it to you. So God delivers and he goes home. And as soon as he gets home, the first thing he sees is not the goat, not the sheep, and not the cow, not anything else, but his only daughter greets him and welcomes him and goes to celebrate this victory. And Jephthah falls on the ground and he weeps. And he boxed himself into a corner unwittingly of now I either have to break a vow to God or I'm supposed to kill my daughter. This is a lose-lose. We don't know exactly what happened. If you read Judges chapter number 11, I'll let you look at it and you can maybe debate it in your small group or something. His daughter goes out into the mountains and says, she tells him, Dad, if you made a vow to God, you've got to keep it. But give me two months. I want to go, the term is, I want to go mourn my virginity. She goes out into the mountains. She's obviously seen that she's never going to be married. She knows that much. And she mourns. She comes back. And then the text just says, when she comes back, 
from that day forward annually, or maybe it was quarterly, I forget actually, the daughters of Israel mourned for his daughter. And we're not entirely sure if he literally killed his daughter or if he was just like, she's yours, Lord, and she's going to be no one else's and she'll never get married and she'll never have children. People debate exactly what happened there. But we know this much. The man wasn't perfect. Okay, We know this much. It's kind of a, it's, it's a sticky, scary story. You get to David, right? David's a famous one. But David is also famous for all of his foibles, right? Adultery, murder, deception, terrible family, like really bad dad. Right? Samuel, Samuel's a prophet, but he's not like the famous, famous prophet, right? Like some of these other prophets, Elijah and Elisha, miracles followed them around like a dog. I mean, it was like they just went everywhere they went. There were miracles all over the place. Samuel never had none of that stuff. And he gives us these names. Why? Why is he giving us Barak and Jephthah and these people? Why are you putting these here as, as examples of faith? And I can't say for sure, but best I can tell what he's saying is that God can do anything and God can use anybody. That it's not just the heroes, it's not just the Christians with their capes flapping in the wind that those are the people God wants to use, the super Christians. God can use anybody. We saw last week Rahab, right? And we learned God can save anybody. But after God saves anybody, God can use anybody. And the truth of, of this little portion of Hebrews is it's trying to say God wants to use you. God has a plan for you. God, I know that your faith is like a yo-yo sometimes. Mine too, Okay. Mine too, I confess. You say, no, not you, you're a pastor. I'm just, I'm just as human as you are. I will forever and for always be exactly human-sized. You draw my blood and run a panel on it. You know what will come back? It will not say there's a different species of person called pastor. It will say I'm human, just like you, right? I struggle sometimes. I have doubts sometimes. I get frustrated I'm short with my kids sometimes. I have all of it, right? We're human. And the point is, number one, be encouraged. If God can use these people, if God can use Jephthah, if God can use Barak, if God can use Gideon, who's full of doubts and the least in his family, if God can use David, the murderer and the deceiver and the bad dad, if God can use these people and he can take their faith, as imperfect as it is, and use it, then God can use you. I don't care what you did last year. I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you did last night. And by I don't care, I don't mean I literally don't care. I mean God can overcome it. God can overcome it. You say, Pastor, I don't know. I'm, I'm up and down. I'm all over the place. Be encouraged. God can use you. I would also say, though, be patient because God can use them. Sometimes, if we're honest, we're, we're more like a yo-yo than we would admit. But oftentimes, we'll look at other people and we'll say, well, compared to me, I'm a bit more stable than they are, and I'm a bit more mature than they are, and we'll get impatient with them. We'll get impatient with them when they don't do what we think they should, or they fall away for a little bit, or all of a sudden, they're, they're, not, as, they're not as sturdy. No, 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 no. God can use you. God can use them. Them? No, no, not them. Yes, them. Yes, he can. Our church should always have a welcome home mentality. The welcome home mentality is really the, the mentality that the father had for the prodigal. It is a, I know you've been away. I know you haven't been perfect. I know you haven't lived life exactly how you knew you should have lived life. You know better, but welcome home. God has a plan for you. God wants to use you. God wants to accept you. God, ha God has a plan for your life. That's encouraging. 
There is a big God who can do supernatural things, both in the miracles, but also in the men he uses. It's miraculous that God would use you because you're not all that. You're not. Secondly, you learn this truth, though. And this is potent. And this is contrary to what maybe some of you have been taught, but it's the truth. Real faith concedes to the sovereign plan of God. Keep reading in verse number 35, and it completely switches. 35b, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Okay, not a resuscitation that the the widows had their dead come back. They were resuscitated miraculously, but then they died again one day. But looking forward to a better resurrection, like a a resurrection, a life everlasting. That's on God's prophetic calendar to, to happen. They looked forward to that. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. You may not get scourged, but you'll probably, if you live for Jesus for any length of time in our society, have a trial of cruel mockings. That's probably a descriptor that could fit you. Yea, moreover, bonds, imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, which that was not what you wanted to wear, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Oh, good for them. You know, they're, they're sojourners and they're just, they're explorers. No, that was not good. They didn't want to live in dens and caves. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Get the picture? First list, all these examples of people who weakness turned to strength. They overcame, right? Overwhelming odds, but they triumphed. They escaped from death. God does an intervention. There are miracles. All these things happen for these people, and these are the stories that we love. My business was almost under, but I I kept the faith. I kept working, and look, here we are today. We're extremely profitable. I I was on death's door. The doctors had nothing left for me. Insurance wouldn't refer me to any to the Cleveland Clinic. They wouldn't let me go. I I mean, I had no human resources, but God touched my body and I'm healed and here I am. We love those stories. But it says there's others. It doesn't end in 35A. It keeps going. Others. Others who believed God. Others who trusted God. Others who had faith in God. And what happened to them? Well, their life went a completely different direction, didn't it? It says they faced overwhelming odds, but they didn't triumph. They were killed. No intervention, no escape from death, no miracles. They're not delivered. Verse 39 says, and it's not because their faith was lacking. Look at verse number 39. It says, these all, the ones who were delivered and the ones who weren't delivered, these all received a good report You get that? What it's saying is that if God had issued a report card to the people at the beginning of the list or the people at the end of the list, both of them, the report card for faith would have said A+. All of them had faith. All of them were good. All of them trusted in God. It wasn't that God didn't deliver them because the quality of their faith was different or the object of their faith was different or somehow there was a problem with their faith. No, 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 no then why? Why would God deliver them and not them? Why would he do a miracle for them and not them? Why would they escape death and them not? Why? I don't know. I'll be honest. I don't know. It's kind of above my pay grade. 
Like, I don't make those decisions. But there were others that were not delivered, which, at first of all, debunks the health and wealth gospel. Let's just make that clear. The idea that you will be healed if you have enough faith, and if your faith is good enough, and if your faith is quality enough, is trash. There's no other way to say it. And, and it completely cripples people by thinking that there's a problem with them because they have some disease or some sickness or whatever it is, and that their faith isn't good enough, and it, it kills people. Or, I don't have enough money, or I'm not rich because I don't have enough faith. It, the Bible doesn't say that. What it says is you as a believer should have faith in the supernatural power of God and trust him and say, God, I believe you can work miracles. I believe that you're big. I'm not, I'm not going to shortchange you. I'm going to pray big. I'm going to think big. I'm going to ask big. I'm going to trust big. I'm going to ask you to heal me, and I'm going to ask you to heal them, and I'm going to ask you to deliver them, and I'm going to ask you to do a miracle there. I'm going to ask you to do those things. But at the end of the day, my faith will also trust in the sovereign plan of God and will understand that if you say no and you don't deliver and you don't give the miracle, and you don't heal, and you don't do that, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That you're in control, and you see the big picture, and who am I? Who am I to take my little vapor of a life and to judge you and your faithfulness based off of my circumstances and my agenda for you, God? That's not my, no, 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 no. I trust you. If you're big enough and strong enough to do miracles, then it would stand a reason that you're also wise enough to know when you need to do a miracle and when you don't. And sometimes I don't know. And honestly, faith is oftentimes put to the true test. When you believe God and you pray and you trust and you yearn, but he doesn't come through how you thought he should or would. And then you're left with the reality of, am I putting my faith in my agenda for God? Or am I putting my faith in God? Because when he doesn't come through on your agenda, you find out real quick if it's really anchored to him or not. And real faith, simply put, real faith is in who, not what. It goes to the person of God. It goes to the character of God. It goes to the faithfulness of God. That's why I love Casey's song. Because God is faithful. I can trust him. And real faith concedes to the sovereign plan. Why is it? You tell me, why is it? that Elijah is delivered from the vengeance of Jezebel. But at the same time, Isaiah, the prophet, is martyred. It actually referred to Isaiah, you may not have realized it in Hebrews 11, when it said that they were sawn asunder. It's talking about Isaiah. We don't have the story in the Bible. It's an extra biblical story. But the story is that the, the king was so mad with Isaiah that he put him in the hollow trunk of a tree and then instructed people to saw the tree in half. And in so doing, they sawed Isaiah in half. Why deliver Elijah from the crazy ruler, but not deliver Isaiah? Was Elijah better in some way? Why is Jeremiah the prophet delivered from Jehoiakim, and the same Jehoiakim wants to kill Uzziah, and Uzziah, he's given to him, and he dies. Why is it that King Agrippa will take in the New Testament era, he'll take James and he will kill him with a sword according to Acts chapter number four. But the same King Agrippa will take Peter and seek to kill him, but God miraculously releases Peter from prison. Was Peter's faith better than James's faith? Was Peter a better Christian? No. 
The answer is that God had a sovereign plan in all of those circumstances and that sometimes he works miracles and sometimes he doesn't and real faith will believe that. Real faith will, will concede and submit and bow to the plan of God and say, God, it's not my agenda, it's not my will, but it's yours. Lastly, thirdly, you find that God, or real faith, is confident in the settled promises of God. Look at verse number 39 and verse number 40. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, and God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. So here's what it's saying. I have to explain this, then we're going to apply it, and I'll make it very real to your life. This is kind of the last explanation. This is saying that all these people, they had a good report in faith. They got an A on their report card. But they did not receive the promise. So it is talking vaguely about what Hebrews 11 has already told us. So many of these examples of Abraham. Abraham was given a promise of a land, right? That's why they call it the promised land. And Abraham went to that land, but it was never really his. He didn't die possessing it. He didn't receive the promise, but he believed God and he trusted him. Moses led the, the children of Israel out of Exodus to this land, but Moses wasn't able to go into the land, right? He didn't receive that promise. This is saying that there were, there were others who had promises in a, in a resurrection from the dead to everlasting life, but it hasn't come yet, right? But then it says that we, verse 40, and it stops talking about all these other people and pointing the finger at them. It says, okay, let's talk about us. It says that, that God provided some better thing for us. Now, most specifically, this is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But broadly speaking, what it's saying is that if you took Barak, Barak could look back and he could see the testimony of faith from Moses. He could see the testimony of faith from Joseph. He could see the testimony of faith from uh, Abraham. But Barak couldn't look back and see the testimony of Elijah or the testimony of Isaiah. He couldn't do that. Abraham, he couldn't look back at Moses. He couldn't look back at, at Barak. He didn't have that. He maybe had Abel or Noah or something, but, but what did Abel have, right? It's, it's saying that we now have a Hebrews 11, okay? We have the stories. We have the proof. We have all these times where God has showed up and God has come through and God has stepped onto the scene and God has been faithful and we can see that in a way that they never could or at least in a clearer way than they ever could. But it's also saying that they, they had a resurrection of sorts that they saw these miracles happen and you would have a Lazarus that raised from the dead or something like that, but they never saw an actual resurrection where God raised somebody from the dead to life everlasting in an immortal body. They never saw that, but we now we do have that we have one person in the middle of history the lord jesus christ who is raised supernaturally and is raised not just resuscitated but raised to new life everlasting and we now have this they didn't have that and it's saying we have better resources we have more than they had and follow the logic it's meant to take you on a logical trail that is, okay, should we have more faith or less faith than them? Should faith be more difficult or less difficult for us? And it logically tells you we should have more faith. It's not, it's not easy. I'm not saying that it's easy to live for God today. I'm not saying it's a bed of roses. I'm not saying that. But I am saying what this is saying. We have better resources. We have more stories. 
We have more examples. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, all the fulfillment of those prophecies that a Messiah would come, that he would live, that he would deliver his people from their sins. We have the fulfillment of all of that. If we can have all of that and see the faithfulness of God and the story of God and God, God keeping his promises over and over and over, then should not we have more faith? That's what it's saying. If they could hold on to God's promises and God's word, we should be able to hold on to God's promises and God's word in a far more substantial way. That if they have a hold of it, we better have a bulldog grip on it. We should be able to believe the promises of God. Get it? God is big. He can do things. But God doesn't promise you that he's going to do those things for you. Sure, he has some promises of if you believe in him, there's heaven. There's everlasting life. There's hope. Those are sure, but promises that you'll be rich, promises that you'll have health, no. You can't judge God by your circumstances. I love how Warren Wearsby said it. He said, you better not get your theology from your circumstances. Because if you do that, you may conclude that God doesn't love you. That's true. There's a lot of my circumstances that would lead me to conclude that God does love me. Oh, for sure. But there's lots of things that come into our lives that we didn't want, we didn't ask for. As a matter of fact, we prayed the opposite. We said, no, don't let it. Stop it. Take it. Get it away from me. And it didn't happen. You can't judge the love of God or get your theology of the faithfulness of God from your little circumstances. There's an old Chinese proverb, actually, that teaches this. And the proverb, you may have heard it before, is that there's a, a farmer, and he has, he has some, some animals and such, but he has one that's his favorite. It's a stallion that's like his workhorse. And one day the stallion runs away, and the neighbors come to him, and they say, oh, lost your workhorse, huh? God must not love you. Three days later, the stallion returns, but this time there's three mares in tow, these wild horses that were found out in the wilderness somewhere and brought them back to the farm. And the neighbors came over and said, oh, well, change our mind. God must really love you. You know, he gave you your stallion back and he gave you some more, some more horses. A couple days later, his son was trying to break one of the mares and he got bucked off and fell and broke his arm in a day and age where you couldn't just go to the hospital and have it reset. It was going to cripple him for the rest of his life. And the neighbors came over and said, oh, God must not love you. A few days went by, and the, and the Chinese army, the recruitment officers came by and said, we're here, we're, we're going to war. Every able-bodied young man has to come with us, and you've got to fight with us right now. But because his arm was broken, they said, no, you stay home. And he stayed home, and he helped his, his dad farm the farm. And the neighbors came over again and said, oh, God must really love you. We were wrong. And the point of the Chinese proverb, although it's not a biblical proverb, the point is valid. You can't base God's love for you on your circumstances. You can't look at the faithfulness of God through the filter of what you want done or what you don't want done. God is bigger than that. God's bigger than that. There's an old hymn. Oh, I say old, I mean real old. It's like 1700s old. It was written by William Cowper. William Cowper is the guy who, um, who wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Raise of hands. How many of you have ever sang that hymn growing up in church? Okay, probably half of you or so. This is not his most famous hymn, but it's one that I think portrays the picture beautifully. And here's what he says. The hymn is called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And he's trying to articulate that his ways are higher than ours. And he said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. I love this. Ye fearful saints, 
fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break and blessings on your head. You know what he's trying to say? He's trying to say that real faith will concede, will submit to the plan of God and understand that God is, God's not your genie. He's not subject to your agenda. But then real faith ultimately is confident in the settled promises of God. That you'll say, I can trust him. I can trust his word. I can trust what he promises. He doesn't lie. He is faithful. I'm going to anchor off to that. And here's the million-dollar question of Hebrews 11, okay? The million-dollar question is this. What is God leading you to do by faith? I want you to chew on that for just a second. What is it that God has been leading you to do by faith? So for some of you, that, that may be literally just putting your faith and your trust in him for salvation and saying, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins, you rose from the dead, I am anchoring off to you, be savior of my life. For some of you, that may be where you're at. That, that's, that's where you need to be first. But for many of you, that's already happened. That's done. And then it becomes, honestly, very subjective. Because God's plan for you is not God's plan for me. God didn't call most of you to pastor a church. But that's what he wanted for me. And I had to respond to him in faith for that, but you didn't, right? Noah built a boat. Abraham took his son up a mountain. Gideon led an army with pitchers. Those, those are all very different from each other. God's plan of faith was different for each of them. So I cannot answer this question for you. It is subjective in that way. But this I know. God has a plan for you. God has some things he wants you to do. God wants you to trust him by faith. That I know. So what is that? Where is it that he's leading you, that he's prompting you, that he's encouraging you, that he's trying to get you out of the boat? He's trying to get you to trust him, and you just won't. For whatever reason, you're scared, you're timid, what will they think? I don't know if I have the time, I don't know if it'll work out. Where is it that he wants you to trust him by faith that you need to say yes to? I'll give you mine. Can I do that? Can I be just be very open, vulnerable, transparent with you for a little bit? I could give you a lot, but I'll give you, in the last couple of years, three big ones for me. So a couple years ago, well, actually, you could rewind the tape 10 years ago. My wife and I, we've always talked about fostering, maybe even adopting one day. That's always been a conversation for us. But we wanted to have our own kids if God would let us have our own kids first and those sorts of things, and, and that happened. And we have four beautiful, healthy kids that we love to pieces. They drive us insane sometimes, but we love them to pieces. And we felt like, you know what? These four no more. We felt like we're good. We probably, you know, God can do whatever God wants to do, but, but we're, we're pretty content with four kids. We thought maybe now's the time to start fostering. So back, it's been almost two years ago now. We finally just stopped talking about it and decided we're going to apply any one of you that we told we were going to do that, you looked at us like we were crazy. All, and you know, no, none of you ever, well, actually, a couple of you did say something. But most of you never said anything, but you could read it on your face. Like, you got four little kids that are like six and under. You do not need another little kid. You have enough to do right now, Pastor. Like, don't make your life more chaotic. Like, all of you thought that. But we just really felt like God was wanting us to do that. So we applied and got approved. And, and now since, I guess, August of last year, we've been a respite home for foster care. We don't have kids with us all the time. 
But it's been a joy, and it has been so much uh, work and fun for us to have in different seasons and different moments a, a kid or two or whatever in our home with our kids and, and caring for them and loving them. And it, it's, it's honestly, it's been a joy. But it was a little bit uncomfortable, okay? It was a little bit uncomfortable. It, we had to rearrange some priorities. It wasn't necessarily easy, but we really felt we should trust the Lord by faith. Last Sunday, we had a prayer service for those of you that wanted to come that are struggling with uh, just infirmities and sickness and, and you're, you're really struggling physically. And to the 80 or 100 of you that were part of that, you know that was a special, beautiful, unbelievable time together. Like it was that hour, it, it, I told people it was going to be a half hour, I lied, it was not even close, it was, it was like an hour. But it flew by and it was just I don't know how to say it other than it was just special. And if you were there, you know what I'm talking about. And so many of you have reached out to me this week and said just as much. But I can be 100% honest. It was extremely uncomfortable for me to go do that. So as a pastor, I can read the Bible, okay? I can read James where it says that the prayer of faith saves, heals the sick. I can read where it says if you're sick, call for pastors and have them lay their hands on you and anoint you with oil and pray over you. I can read that. It's plain. But I've never done that like in a public prayer session way. Like, I, never, I never have. I didn't entirely know what to do. If I'm 100% honest, there's a little bit of fear in my heart that some of you are going to point the finger at me and say, you're not even a Baptist anymore. Look at you, you Pentecostal. You, you know, you charismatic. That you, like, I know people. Those, those things go through my head, and it was not comfortable for me to say, look, we're going to do this. I believe God wants us to do this. This is his word. Let's trust his word. Let's follow him. Let's go to him in faith. Let's say, do some miracles. Do some things. We're trusting you, Lord. We submit to your will, but let's trust you. It, it literally was scary for me to do that. But after a couple months of God prompting and saying, do it, do it, do it, do it. It was finally like, we just have to do this. And it was awesome. It was awesome. We're in the middle right now of a capital campaign, right? And that has played on my insecurities like you would not believe. So I cried last week. I don't want to cry this week. I'm just as human as you, Right? So we as a church have talked and talked and talked. We've had focus group meetings. We've had, we've had other meetings. We've done this. We've done that. Put all the information we could to try to say, what does the future look like? Where do we want to go? Where do we want to push? You know, these sorts of things. How much money do we need from those things? And finally, it came down to like green light or red light. We're going for it or we're not, right? But humanly speaking, there's all kinds of things that go through my head. Well, what if we do this and nobody steps up and nobody believes and nobody gives? You're going to look like an idiot, right? Well, what if we do this and people don't like it? What if, what if they get mad at you? I mean, some people may even leave the church over this. Nobody likes to talk about money. You know, we shouldn't have money conversations for, for three months and talk about a capital campaign. That could be uncomfortable. There's all these things that, go through, that can go through your head. And eventually, if, if I'm convinced or you're convinced that God wants you to do something by faith, you eventually have to say, look, voices, shut up. I'm done. I'm turning it off. 
I don't know the mind of the Lord. I'm not Moses going up the mountain with, with commandments here. But best I can tell, this is where God wants us to go. This is where he wants us to trust him. This is how he wants us to step out in faith. Let's do it. Now, we're a few months into the capital campaign, and there's $4.2 million pledged. And so now it's a little bit easier to stand before you and act confident and act secure and act like this is, you know, what God wants us to do. But that is, it's tough. It's scary for me sometimes. It is insecure for me sometimes to do those things. But the point is, if God wants you to do something, follow him. Trust him. Why? Because he's trustworthy. So are mine yours? Probably not. Does God want you to be a foster parent? I don't know, maybe. Probably not. Does God want you to go lead a church in a capital campaign? Probably not. Right? But what are yours? What are yours? What stories will your grandkids tell about when grandma and grandma trusted God in an unusual way? Does he want you to go serve in that ministry, but you feel like, I don't know, like that's, I don't know, the people that serve there, are they going to reject me? Are they going to welcome me? Are they going to want me? Does he want you to go be a missionary and it scares the fire out of you to leave job, to leave security? I don't know what it is. But here's what I know that I know that I know. God's faithful. God is big. God is strong. His word is sure. Trust him. Follow him. Commit to him. Don't have just a verbal faith, but not an action. Put it into action. Take what he's leading you to do and trust him with it. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the joy that it is to study your word and to try to glean some practical application for it. Lord, we thank you not just for these stories, but we thank you now on this side of the cross for the story of Jesus, that you would come, that you would live, that you would die, that you would raise, that Jesus, you would commit yourself to the Father's will in moments where your soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Lord, if I read that right, it means that it was not easy to trust and to take the steps of faith that, that were yours. And God, I pray that you would give us that same courage and that same tenacity. Although all of us have a little bit of a yo-yo faith, I pray that it would be less and less and that we would mature and that we would be more stable. I pray that we would trust you more and I pray that we would never write ourselves off or let someone else write us off as you can't use us, you don't want to use us, we're not good enough, we're not worthy. I pray that we would see that for the trash that it is and that we would be convinced to the core of our being that you want to use us, that you want to use our families, that you want to use our church, that you want to work, you want to use us, you want to do things. And God, I pray that we trust you by faith, that we would lean on you and that we would submit ourselves to you and that we would know that you're trustworthy. Help us to live these lives. Thank you for the better resources that we have. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. This morning, I'm going to ask you to remain in a spirit of prayer and I'm going to ask you, if you know Jesus, to respond to him. Either take whatever that is that he's telling you to trust him with and commit it to him right now or ask him to give you something. 
Now, there's honestly nothing that's on your heart or that he's, he's put before you in a way that you need to trust him by faith this summer. And say, Lord, I'm open. I'm willing. I'll do my best to respond in faith. Give it to me. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we've already said it in this sermon. But he loves you. He came for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead. And if you will put your faith and your belief in him, he says, I will save you. You can't save yourself. You can't rely on another God or another religion. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And if in this moment where you sit right now, you'll call out to him in prayer, you'll say, Jesus, save me from my sins. Jesus, I put my faith and my trust in you. Jesus, be my Savior. You and you alone. If you will pray to him, if you will ask him something like that, he says, he promises, he promises that he will. He will save you from your sin. He will come into your life. He will, will change you. He doesn't promise that it will all be easy or that it will all be just a bed of roses. He never says that. But he does say that he's trustworthy and that you can anchor to him. So if you never have, today, may it be your day, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. He loves you. Lord, if there's someone that doesn't know you right now, I pray that your spirit would work. I pray that your spirit would speak to them and that they would call in faith and they would receive you right here, right now. Lord, I ask that you would do that. Thank you that the promises of your word are yes and amen, that they are sure thank you for making it so clear that if we believe in you, our sins are gone, we're justified, we have right standing with God, heaven is our home. Thank you for those promises. We love you and praise you that you would make them for us, that you would make a way for us. Jesus is in your name. Amen. Well, church family, I love you. We're going to baptize a few people this morning. I'm excited about it. But before we do that, we're going to play a little announcement video and let you know a few things that are happening. Uh, We actually, in the summer months, we have probably more that happens on the church calendar than than in the spring even. There's always a lot to do. So pay attention to this, and as soon as it's done, don't run out. We're going to do a couple baptisms, and you'll be dismissed. Good morning, church. Thanks for joining us this morning as we worshiped and we read and we learned from God's word. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. If this is your first time or maybe you just haven't been in a while, we want to say a special welcome to you. On your way out today, make sure you stop by the welcome desk because we want to put a gift in your hand and give you a Bible if you don't already have one. On Saturday, June 4th, from 10 to 4, Jim Bracelin of Silent Word Ministries will be holding an event for the deaf community called Fantastic Saturday. If you know who might be interested in attending, you can pick up a flyer to share with them at the welcome desk. Our next intro to Harvest class is coming up on June 5th after the 1030 service over in the cafeteria. Here you can learn about our mission and our church family and how you can be a part of it. Snacks and childcare will be provided. There has been a lot of confusion about the abortion-related recent Supreme Court ruling and how it affects Pennsylvanians. 
Please join us for a brief meeting after the 1030 service today as Dave Coyle addresses questions, provides clarity, and gives direction on how Christians can be involved moving forward. We are really excited about what God is doing here at Harvest through our capital campaign. And we recently had time to sit down with the Hazlets to hear their heart. So let's take a moment to hear what they have to say. Hi, my name is Brian Hazlett. And I'm Lori Hazlett. And we have been attending Harvest for 15 years and we have four children. I currently serve in the nursery ministry and also in the uh, orchestra and I work in the school office. Currently, I serve in the orchestra and the audiovisual ministry, uh, as well as a one on Wednesday night. We've been attending Harvest since 2007, uh, back when we were on Kenneth McCargo in New Kensington. I remember parking at LM Tire and walking <laughs> across New Kensington to get to church on a weekly basis. Uh, shortly after we started, uh, they did the first capital campaign uh, to build the current facility that we're in. Uh, and that church seemed uh, comfortable, even though it was small and crowded. But now that we have been in the new facility, we've seen lots of growth here. Our Wednesday night, we have several hundred children here. Sunday morning, same thing. Uh, we now have a full orchestra, a larger choir, and we have an academy now that has over 300 students involved, uh, all which would not have been possible without the capital campaign back in New Kensington. Last time our campaign was more like a fundraiser where we had one large Sunday where we took in an offering. This time it's a capital campaign where we're asking everybody, everybody participating, everybody having equal sacrifice, not equal giving, but everybody participating in equal sacrifice over a longer period of time. We had been discussing the capital campaign and we had been discussing how we were going to participate. We had a number in our head. Mm -hmm. uh, since then we have had our visit. God was challenging us through that visit as we learned more about what is going to occur in the capital campaign and we are uh, going above and beyond even where we started. We're look, we are going to be stretching our faith. We're going to be uh, expecting God to help provide. I think one of the things that really excites me with this capital campaign is not only the addition of the auditorium, but all of the classroom space that can be used both for the church services and for the classrooms. I mean, the kids that we are reaching, we watch these academy kids come in here never having been in church and four months later, parents are calling teachers saying, I don't know what the difference is, but we're gonna, we're gonna bring Johnny up to Awana on Wednesday night. Next thing you know, they're getting plugged into a, a group. We've never had the ability until this building to have 50 kids in Awana in mm -hmm. the fifth and sixth grade on a Wednesday night and 70 students in uh, youth group, group as yeah. well. How many more people we can reach if we had more space, if we had the ability to, to house more people on a Sunday morning. The groups are full, the classrooms are full, the Sunday school, the, the junior churches is full, and uh, there's still people wanting to come. And I can only imagine how exciting it's going to be when we have that new auditorium that can see additional people, additional families can come. So every Sunday we walk in the doors and we see that big banner above the fireplace about making mature followers of Christ. and. The capital campaign ties into that perfectly. With the additional classroom space and nursery space and auditorium space, we're trusting that God is going to use Harvest Baptist Church to make mature followers of Jesus.
It is exciting to hear the heart behind other members who see the importance of what we're doing through the capital campaign. I know that many of you have already had your visit and started making your pledges. For that, thank you. If you haven't had a visit yet, I want to encourage you, reach out, head over to the welcome desk or go on our website and request that visit. Next Sunday night at 6 o'clock is our night of worship. We'll gather and sing, pray, and worship together. As Harvest launches on to a new chapter with the growth of our academy and moving forward with the capital campaign projects, we want to pause and praise Him for all that He's doing in our church. We are asking that the church come together during this special service, praying for God's guidance and praising Him for His provision. Nursery will be provided. Thanks again for joining us this weekend for worship. If you decided to accept Christ today, we think that is absolutely awesome and we want to celebrate with you. Make sure you stop by the welcome desk so you can meet one of our pastors and we can partner alongside you as you begin this new relationship with Christ. You can connect with us throughout the week on our website at harvestbaptist.info and on all of our social media platforms. You are dismissed and we'll see you next week. All right, guys, come here, Bryce. <clears throat> no, don't jump. <laughs> this is Bryce and Brindley. These two are not only beyond excited to be baptized today, um, <clears throat> we forgot to turn the heater on in the baptistry, so the water's cold. <laughs> they got it in, like, ah! <laughs> so these are twins, okay? These are the Edwards twins uh, going into first grade. Don't be shy now. We were, we were having a swim party while you were watching a video, so forgive us. We were having fun. Uh, but I'm excited for these two. I'm excited for the whole Edwards family. And uh, it's a joy. I don't care if someone's six years old or 60 years old. To see people put their faith in Jesus and want to follow him in baptism, right? This faith in Jesus is an internal thing, but this baptism step is an external thing. And so we get to see these two baptized. Bryce told me, we both wanted to go first, so we played paper, rock, scissors, and I won, so I get to go first. So, Bryce, I'm going to ask you a serious question. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Yes. And I get to baptize you as a brother in Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Plug your nose. Buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Listen, Bryce, you get to, Brindley, you come right up here. They want to see your face. You get to cheer your sister on, okay? This is special. You guys got to be born together. You get to be baptized together. This is special. Brindley, have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? That he rose from the dead? Then I get to baptize you as a sister in Jesus. Come right down here. Plug your nose. Buried in the likeness of his death raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Alright, you two. Come on this way. at some point in time in their life and if you never have even if you're an adult I recommend it you should do it sometime okay we have one more and uh, this is joy and this thrills me it really does 
because you have, you know, six-year-olds, right? And then you have Joy. I don't know how Joy is, but we'll, we'll, we'll say 40, okay? Older than six. Uh, <laughs> and it, 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 we'll call loves Joy. It thrills me to be a multi-generational church. And that's represented in so many different ways. But even right here in these baptism waters, those that are young and those that are at least a generation older are coming to follow the Lord in baptism. It's a beautiful thing. Joy, I know it's cold, so I'll make this quick. She she came to me about, I don't know, a month, month and a half ago. And, and if you think about it, pray for Joy. She's been through a lot, lost her husband recently. And uh, about a month and a half ago, she came to me and said, Pastor, I've been a Christian a long time. I know the Lord. I'm saved. But someone told me many years ago that I wasn't good enough to be baptized. Is that true? I said, Joy, that's not true. She said, can I be baptized? I said, I would love to baptize you. So today, we get to be a part of something super special, something super special, something that the Father looks at, a step of faith like this, and he's pleased with it. He really is. Joy, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, then I get to baptize you as a sister of Jesus in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Step forward just a little bit. Plug your nose. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So is the Lord. So is the Lord. All right, church. I love you. God bless. You're dismissed.